Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Steve Trent to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Steve is CEO and founder of the Environmental Justice Foundation, an NGO that works to secure a world where natural habitats and environments can sustain and be sustained by the communities that depend upon them for their basic needs and livelihoods. Steve has more than 30 years' experience in environmental and human rights campaigning for the protection of natural resources, the environment and human rights, taking action to bring about tangible positive change and implementing solutions to ensure genuine long-term sustainability. Steve also co-founded WildAid, serving as president for over a decade and leading WildAid's work in China and India. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a pleasure, Fergal. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Now, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about all kinds of environmental issues, crises, and the ways in which uh, they uh, connect to the, the underlying environmental justice questions that are uh, involved in these questions, which are, uh, we, we don't often think about. So before we discuss the, 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 the work that you do at the Environmental Justice Foundation, can you tell us a little bit about your background, Steve, and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been working um, in the intersection between environmental security and human rights for over three decades now. Um, I specialised quite early on in um, investigation, field-based investigations, to understand what abuses or crimes are really happening in the real world, to, to bear witness, if you like. And then taking evidence, information, data sets from those field-based investigations and, and background research and presenting it to decision makers, whether they be in the, the corporate boardroom or in, in governments and political positions of power around the world, to drive policy changes. For me, I always looked at um, the outcome, if you like. How do you drive change that can bring enduring benefit to people around the world to deliver a secure environment, which after all, we all depend upon, and to protect the human rights of the the very basic human rights of people who depend upon that secure environment for their well-being, their livelihoods, their income, and their way of life. So that's been my, my, my mission over the last three and a half decades I was the co-founder of the Environmental Justice Foundation and co-founder of another organization based in the United States called WildAid. Um, and this is the work I've given my life to. And I hope that as we look to the future, some of the changes I've worked towards and some of the actions that I've tried to deliver 
can, can bring that lasting positive change for, for people and planet. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, we're facing all kinds of interlocking, uh, interconnected environmental crises. I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind right now? What keeps you awake? So, as you might not be too surprised to hear, there are a number of things that keep me awake. I think I have to talk about climate because that is the overarching issue of our time, failure on, on delivering a rollback on our addiction to carbon. On, on delivering genuinely zero carbon economies um, will bring failure everywhere. And that's failure on food security. It's failure on fundamental human rights. It's failure on biodiversity and wildlife conservation. So that's, that's the key issue. We, we, we spend a lot of time, energy and effort working to try and persuade the powers that be, the influential individuals and organizations that need to listen, that change needs to be delivered now right but the other issue that's related to this because almost everything touches upon our climate or is influenced by our climate is something called deep sea mining this is keeping me awake at night um if you'll allow me just to say a few words about what it is because most people won't have heard of it or don't know what it is even if they have so the deep sea, which effectively is the area in our seas and oceans below 200 metres, that covers two-thirds of the sea floor, but it comprises 95% of the Earth's biosphere, the livable space that we have for the creatures and organisms we share our planet with. And in that area, about 98% of ocean species live in on or just above the sea floor, and we're, you know, it's only now we're beginning to understand the value of this 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 environment, this these ecosystems, and to understand the impacts we might have if we allow so-called deep sea mining to take place. Um, just to, before a quick pause on this. If I tell you that scientists are estimating that somewhere between 500,000 and 10 million species coexist in the deep sea, and that's a diversity on a par with our tropical forests, and that those species will be at risk from this activity, then I think you can begin to see why it's keeping me awake at night and why we're working hard now to make sure that deep sea mining does not start in earnest. Right. That's uh, very profound, very dramatic and very scary. And um, yes, we'll talk about that uh, shortly and the work that you're doing and and what's at stake here. Um, You mentioned climate change. Uh, Clearly, um, so many environmental issues have got an environmental justice dimension, uh, whether it's uh, recognized or uh, explicit, as it were. But just focusing on climate change for a moment, how is this different and how does climate change exacerbate, should we say, existing environmental and, and other social injustices globally, Steve? Uh, this, this this is a subject that I talk about regularly all over the world to many people. Um, and I think it's too often it's, it's been disguised, hidden and, and gets buried in the overwhelming issue of climate. So to keep it really simple and to try and explain, broadly speaking, we in the global West, in the world's wealthy developed countries, have lived off a carbon economy that has in effect heated our planet and is now heating it to the point whereby 
many people are experiencing detrimental impacts, the extreme weather events, the hurricanes, the cyclones, or the so-called slow onset events, desertification, the drying up of lakes and fresh water. Now, for us in the West, we are still largely insulated from those impacts. The way we live, how we're protected, means that we don't register them on a daily basis. But if you are a poor farmer living somewhere in the global south, in sub-Saharan Africa, and you're experiencing a drought, not just this year, but next year and the year after, and you cannot feed your children, you cannot feed yourself, the impacts of global climate change of our heating world are much more immediate, real and severe. And so to put it in a nutshell, the carbon that we consume that heats our planet is at the same time starving people and forcing them from their homes because they can no longer grow the crops or food they need to survive. So that's the net, that's the net equation. That's, that's the cost that we have. And if I tell you one thing that I often recall for people is that um, a long way back in 2008, I was in the region of Southeast Asia when a hurricane called Hurricane Nargis struck the coast of Myanmar. Now, they stopped counting the dead when they reached 138,000 people. This was one extreme weather event. 138,000 people and more had died from that. And my message to policymakers is that if this had been in Paris or Berlin, Washington or London, I think we would already be living in a different world where climate were taken much more seriously, where the action that's needed to roll back global heating and cool our planet down would be taken. Right. We live in a world of climate apartheid, and our policymakers, our political decision takers, our corporate leaders now must wake up to this. Because while at this moment it is overwhelmingly the people in the global south, the poorest and the most vulnerable, and within that, more often than not, women and children that are being impacted. But we must make no mistake, this is coming for us too. This is existential. It is global. The impacts of climate and our heating world will magnify other stresses, other threats, will lead to further conflict and violence, will lead to greater disparities in wealth and poverty. So we all have an interest in this. We all have a stake. And I think it's really vital that now we listen to the science take a pause and then take the necessary actions. Yes, right, absolutely. Now, you, you talk about the global south, and I think many people would have some sense that, you know, uh, they'd read about Bangladesh and Pakistan and various countries like that that, that you know, are, uh, have, I mean, issues related to the location as well as the, the underlying climate. But what you're getting at as well is that it's the poorest and the most vulnerable in society. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, if you look, the figures speak for themselves. And without without um, drowning us in, in stats, if you look at the world's 50 least developed countries, they're responsible for less than 1% of global carbon emissions. Yet the EU states alone are responsible for around 40% of, of human-caused emissions between 1850 
and and 2011. So you can see the difference there. 50 poor developed countries producing virtually nothing. But critical to this is not only are they producing no industrial greenhouse gas emissions, they're also not getting any benefit from them. So whilst our lives have changed dramatically over the last 100 years, giving us cars and televisions, foreign holidays and flights, the internet and all those benefits, the computer through which I'm talking to you now, those people in the 50 least developed countries commonly are in agricultural-based economies where if you have one season in drought or one season in flood, you go hungry if not starve. And that those floods and those droughts are being dramatically enhanced by our heating world. So the injustice, this issue of environmental justice as we describe it, is manifest. It's absolutely clear. But I want one other set of figures, if you'll allow me just to say this, is that increasingly we're seeing people being forced from their homes by extreme weather. Now, we have witnessed some of this in, in the Western world. You can see the periodic floods in historic Italian towns, in the UK, in Somerset and the levels, wherever you want to look, you can see that kind of thing happening. But it tends to be relatively short-lived and it tends to be mitigated. There are, there are agencies to look after us. But in the poorer parts of the world, we're now seeing increasing numbers, millions of people forced from their homes. Uh, around 21.5 million people are being forcibly displaced each year. That's over 59,000 every day. It's 41 people every minute. And where do they go? Well, in the past, they may have stayed within the confines of their national boundaries, but increasingly they're being forced across boundaries into other countries where they have no status, no rights. Many of them have no passports or identity documents. Most of them have little, if any, money or means of support. So what happens to those people? Where do they go? Who do they turn to for the help and support they need that results from a problem that we, the wealthy world, caused. And you can see this massive unfairness, this huge division between the haves and the have-nots. And the last point I would say again, which some people may not get, may not understand, but it is the truth, and I've witnessed it firsthand in country after country, place after place, is almost always those impacted first and worst of women and children, and they're left to fend for themselves. And this is being replicated now on a global scale. It's not just limited to a few countries that are extremely poor. It's an increasing number, and, and you can take your pick of the continents and you will start to find trouble of this ilk emerging. That's a very scary and uh, a dark portrait of the state of affairs and, and, and how... Also, this is escalating and growing over time. How as an organization do you focus? Where do you decide to, to emphasize so many, the scale of these issues, these challenges are enormous. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the work of the Environmental Justice Foundation, uh, wh- yeah. where, where you're focused? And also maybe, um, not too many questions in there, how is it different from other organizations that are focusing on this space? 
I think we're not deliberately seeking out to, to, to carve a different niche, but we have been mildly different to, to some of the others. If you look at the history of, of um, the work on, on global heating or climate change, if you like, it's tended to be illustrated by polar bears and wildlife and the threat to our natural world. Less so now, but it's certainly in the past when we started working on this two decades or more ago, people didn't figure. There was very little understanding about the fact that climate has a human face, that the suffering it will cause will be human as well as across our natural ecosystems. And what we wanted to do was link those fundamental issues of human rights, the real basics so a right to fresh water, a right to a safe and secure place to live, the right to be able to feed yourself and your family, and this issue of environmental security, as witnessed by climate change and, and other um, pressing crimes, abuses that we see across the world. So we've inherently addressed the two together rather than separating them out and, and putting them the second point that, that I think is important, it's not different to some to many others, but we've certainly pioneered this and led, is to take voices from the front lines, from the global south, and try and bring them to global capitals, to take grassroots and local concerns global, if you like, and make those policymakers who may be sitting in a nice office in Brussels or London or Washington or wherever – and present them with the reality of what is happening around the world as a result of their policy decisions. So bearing witness and and presenting it to those decision makers who have the opportunity to change the world. And then a few other things that we've, we've, we've worked with extensively and pioneered, the use of film, film has multiple benefits, but it can cross cultural and linguistic barriers. It's a wonderful communications tool. And we've worked with communities across the world to, to produce films that articulate the problem and the solutions. And then the last thing I think is our work to empower people. So we, we have a, a global program now to train environmental defenders, to support them, to equip them with cameras and drones, to give them the means to provide, to deliver the kind of advocacy that they need in their locality to hopefully change their world for the better. Um, we're not radically different from others and we're inherently collaborative. And I think the truth is about this is that organisations do need to work together. They, we've got to collaborate we're going to win. Very interesting indeed. Um, can you, before we talk about a, n- a number of specific campaigns, can you maybe talk a little bit about the, uh, the I suppose the, what we might call the legal infrastructure for environmental justice, environmental rights, in terms of, uh, you know, I guess with human rights, we've seen, you know, the Universal Declaration uh, in the 19, late 1940s, the Convention on Human Rights, the uh, various steps forward, uh, building momentum and legal infrastructure of the European Court of Human Rights. What is the legal uh, standing or structure around which uh, these environmental justice questions need to be resolved at an international level? Well, I think the, 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 the simple answer there is there's very little in terms of the international legal regime, treaties and agreements that exists. And there's very little at a regional or national level, whether that be across the European Union and Africa, Asia or elsewhere. It's not there. You mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
Now, this is something that has challenged me since my first days of becoming involved as an environmental activist and campaigner. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, gives you the right to marriage, but it nowhere does it mention the right to a secure environment. And if you look at the world we live in, our fragile planet, without that secure environment, without fresh water, without the means to produce food, without the means to provide a safe and secure place to live, you have no other rights, in effect. It's a bizarre and peculiar gap in the international legal regime and our thinking about the environment. And it's one that we need to close now. So uh, my answer to your, your, your question would be the, the laws, the structures don't exist now and we need to invent them quickly and, and, and with care and thought to make sure that they do provide the kind of environmental justice that people need and deserve. It's interesting you, you say that, and I've seen some um, whispers. Uh, there was a UN declares healthy environment a human right, um, but not binding. Um, uh, clearly, this is important, isn't it? Um, because the organisations like yours uh, and the great work you're doing, and many others, um, it's it, it it would really uh, be. What's the word? Uh, it, it would be to have some legal uh, underpinnings and structure could change things pretty dramatically. It would, it, it would be transformative. And I think there's a very basic um, concept here that we need to understand. So if you, if you look at those climate refugees that I was talking about earlier, those people that are forced from their homes and that are forced to travel across national boundaries, what rights do they have? None, pretty much at the moment. There are not the international legal systems and agreements that exist to, to give them the protection. They're at the mercy of whatever jurisdiction they end up in. To have these rights enshrined in something like the Universal Declaration, to ha give them teeth and make sure that they were implemented and enforced, and enforced by states across the world would change the, the world in a dramatic and profound way and you know there's a very simple rule here without the laws to guide us all responses will be ad hoc if not arbitrary and may be humanitarian supportive and kind or may not indeed may be quite brutal and repressive and we could see this unfolding in multiple different mass migration crises across the world large-scale environmental traumas that are happening and unfolding right now. We need the laws, and we need our lawmakers to take up this challenge, yes. to craft elegant framing and deliver them in a way that is enforceable. Is there momentum on this? Is this something you're working on, or are there other organizations focusing on this? It is something that we're working on, and increasingly other organizations are paying attention to it. I think one of the challenges that we face is that this is it's huge, it's so vast, and, and it is inherently international. It's, it's global in its scale, which makes it even harder. Um, we have actually commissioned legal documents from, from major international um, law firms to help us craft the debate and what some of these new laws might look like. Others are doing the same. Organisations like Oxfam have looked closely at this and are, and are, and are pushing this concept of, of, of justice in climate, if you like. 
but there's not nearly enough being done. And, you know, most of the governments that we deal with around the world are looking at short-term cycles. They're not looking to the long-term future or these big issues. They're looking at the next election and can they win it or not. Yeah, yeah. That's very depressing, Steve. Um, you work with uh, campaigns then, I guess, is one way of kind of, I guess, partitioning or segmenting the work that you do. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about about how they work, maybe look at the deep sea mining, how you take an issue like that and break it into parts where you can focus on creating change and momentum? Yeah, and it's, it varies from issue to issue and need, but I mentioned the, the use of investigation, bearing witness and, and bringing testimony to decision makers. That's key in pretty much all of our campaigns and our work. There's something on like deep sea mining, there's a different dimension. This, the decisions that surround whether we do or we don't mine our deep sea are largely being taken behind closed doors in private almost, if you like, at something called the International Seabed Authority. Which apparently, so which, which I, if I understand correctly, is, 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 is six guys in, a, in, a, in an office somewhere in Jamaica or something. I, I don't know, but it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be very well resourced. It's wholly undemocratic. It was. It is actually a UN agency. It was established under something called the, the UN Law of the Sea, but it has acted in a very undemocratic way. So, for example, journalists are excluded from proceedings. Most of the key decisions are made in private behind closed doors. It has a secretariat which has prosecuted a particular view favourable, I would say, towards deep-sea mining whilst others have said no. So we've had to lift the veil. We've had to you know, open the doors, if you like, on this decision-making in two ways. One, to, to talk to individual governments. We've had deep dialogue with Germany, France, Spain. Um, most recently, the UK just came out and calls for a moratorium or a pause on deep-sea mining, and in part because of our work, not exclusively, but in part because of that. Um, and we've also had to lift the veil on what this ecosystem is because those tiny number of people and small special interest groups, the mining companies themselves, who've been saying this is important, it's necessary, it's good, they've been saying there won't be any harm, there won't be any trouble, there is no bother, there's, there's nothing to see here almost. Yet when we start to tell people that in these really fragile deep sea ecosystems you have animals like the greenland shark that can live for 270 years the longest living vertebrate on our planet you can have corals that are four thousand years old or you can have sponges that are eleven thousand years old the oldest living creatures on our planet and this these environments are very stable, they're cold, they're dark. They've formed over tens of thousands of years. And what these mining companies are, are proposing to do is go down and literally dredge them, dig them up. You can draw analogies with clear-cutting forests. You can draw all sorts of different images of this. But the simple iteration is highly destructive, highly damaging to unique environments that Frankly, we know more about the surface and the moon than we know about these. And our ocean, and this is where we must, people really need to understand the scale and the dimension of this. Our ocean is vital 
in combating the climate issue that we've been talking about. It, it regulates our rainwater, it regulates our drinking water, it produces more oxygen than all the world's forests put together. It takes most of the carbon dioxide that we produce and swallows it into its systems. To disrupt our ocean ecosystems further is literally madness on multiple levels. On a climate perspective, it's crazy. Looking at the biodiversity that it would unsettle, possibly destroy, it's crazy. On a justice level, it's crazy because there would be the accrual of wealth to a tiny, small number of companies at the cost of a global community. So we've been pushing those messages. You asked, how do we say this? We, well, I've been meeting personally, German Environment Minister, German Parliamentary State Secretary for the Economy. I fly at the end of this week to meet the Thai Prime Minister to discuss these issues and others with him. We're pushing this at every way we can across the European Commission, across the European Parliament, in the United States. Putting the case for and presenting the, the the falsehoods of the mining companies that are prosecuting this idea. Um, and hopefully we're, we're persuading decision makers around the world that they can and should act. Currently, I think it's something like 23 countries have either come out and called for a pause moratorium or outright ban, including France, Germany, Spain. Um, alongside them, over 800 scientists from 44 countries. The UN Human Rights Commissioner, Volker Turk, has called for a, a, a ban. The European Parliament, the Commissioner, 72 indigenous groups from 51 countries. And, and this is really interesting, companies that could benefit from this massively, like BMW and VW and Renault, have said we need a moratorium. Even those companies are saying we need to stop this. So I think the the claims of the mining companies that are pushing this, this agenda are pretty fragile. And as witnessed, not least, by this growing opposition uh, that, against deep sea mining. Well, it's, it's inspiring to hear of the growing opposition and the various alliances. I spoke to Guy Standing uh, some time ago about... Uh, the destruction of uh, fragile ocean ecosystems and marine pollution and so forth. But just looking at the other side, what is the legal status now? Where are we? What's the what? What decisions are being made, and what kind of time frame? It's pretty close. They could usher this in now. Um, and if I just take a quick step back, when we were looking at what involvement we should have and why we should get involved, there was one clear imperative for me. This was an opportunity to stop a massive global problem before it started, if that made sense. So that's why we engaged. There's been others that have been working on this for far longer than us, but we engaged to help support them and bring our own assets to, to the table. The other reason why we engaged now, now was because there's been a, a mechanism that's been put into place at the International Seabed Authority, which will make the decisions about this, that gave two years to create a set of rules, regulations, if you like, that could effectively usher in deep sea mining that is coming to a close now so the decisions about this are being made right now 
And that's why we've had to push so hard in, in over the last 12, 14 months to try and roll this back and get the necessary objections. But as I said, one of the problems that we have with this is that the whole process is undemocratic. It's operating in the shadows. They're not opening the doors. They're trying to exclude people. And you have at the ISA vested interests that seem intent on forcing this through. I'm a professional optimist. You you have a sense that this is is getting a broader consensus and support, or do you think that these are still uh, profound uh, issues that will come down to national as well as the corporate uh, agenda that you talk about? No, I, I think it is getting broader support, and and as witnessed by those those automotive companies that are saying no to deep sea mining, they're saying we need a pause. We don't understand what the impacts would be. So I mentioned BMW and VW. There are also other major global brands that that could stand to benefit. Companies like Apple that have said no. They've said no to deep sea mining, but they've said no to any mining. So they're now looking at what we call a circular economy, the use of recycling and making sure that we don't just have this endless cycle of, of extraction, use, and then discarding. So you have a broad number of, of corporate entities that are lining up and saying, no, we don't think this should happen, despite the fact that we might theoretically at least benefit from it. You also, I mentioned some of the European countries that have yeah. stood up and said no. They are all charged with transition to zero carbon. They are all charged with greening their economies, which is what the mining companies say this deep sea mining will help them do. And they're saying, no, there's a better way of doing it. We can do this without causing such disruption or harm to our marine environment. So you can see there people coming together for, you can argue it's a global good that can help us all have a survivable future. And I I think um, if I were a gambling man, I would say I'm going to bet that we win on this one because the, the, there are enough powerful forces being aligned to stop the, the, the narrow, purely financial interests from, from the mining companies who want this from getting their way. Well, that's inspiring, Steve. Um, not too many cases like that, even, even within the, the EU today with, with varying lobbying and one of the, I think, uh, we talked uh, briefly about some of the distinctive, distinguishing features of, of the way you work and so forth. But you, it seems that that uh, the heart of what you do, there's this, uh, I guess, valuing uh, appreciation of local communities and working with local communities. And um, I mean, talking about the, the the sea mining is an extreme case where, uh, but maybe not so extreme, where, where where the power is concentrated in such a small group, which is undemocratic and so forth. But it's not unusual in many of these environmental uh, 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 problems where the, the people who make the decisions aren't the people who are living on the ground. The governance issues are very serious, very significant. And working with uh, people on the ground is clearly uh, vitally important. And can you talk about why uh, you know empowering local communities is important, a grassroots approach, and, and maybe some insights around that, Steve? If you, I think if you look across the world, then you know, decision-taking uh, uh, across virtually all sectors tends to be narrow and isolated. It's the, it's the privileged and the wealthy that have the, the, the primary voice and those who live on the fringes who, who have to live with the, the consequences of decisions who don't 
have any kind of voice. And I've, I've recognized this from almost from the beginning of my career. Now, I had the opportunity to travel to many different countries around the world and see what was happening firsthand, if you like, when you cut down the forests, when you strip mine the seas, what happens to those local communities, the indigenous peoples, the individuals who depended upon that resource for their livelihood and their their, their income. Um, and it became apparent to me very early on that we, to in order to build the protections for those those environments, we needed the support of those local communities, and they themselves wanted to have a voice to play a role. So we're serving two purposes, if you like, um, our own narrow campaign-driven work, but also the broader issue of environmental justice and giving these people a voice in the world, a say over the, the future that they have to face. And so we have this global program of training these environmental defenders, as I mentioned earlier, supporting them with finance, with technical equipment, um, and with training and advocacy and communications, and also working with them to take them to things, to, to, to decision-making centres around the world, in Brussels and Washington and London, elsewhere. So their voice is at very least heard. But there's, a, there's another dimension to this that I think is, is a truism, if you like. Where we talk about regulation and protections, particularly environmental regulations in places where the environment is the one source of employment, if you like. So coastal communities around the world that are fishing, and that's how they survive. That's how they feed their family. That's how they pay for medicines and schooling and such. If you suddenly walk in and introduce a ban on fishing because there are problems going on in that place, what happens to those people? You effectively criminalise them. You deny them access to the resource that sustained them. And you make their lives almost impossible. But conversely, if you work with those communities, train them, equip them, support them to manage that resource themselves sustainably and for the future, for future generations, then you give them the opportunity to create a future that's livable, sustainable, and doesn't criminalise them or punish them. And so that that's the goal with this. That's what we're trying to do when we, we work with environmental defenders around the world, is quite simply give them a voice, empower them, and, and let them have a say in building a sustainable, survivable future for them and us all. And they're uh, under threat. I've done a number of interviews with Global Witness and uh, the, the work that they do, the, the number of environmental defenders that have been murdered uh, every year um, is shocking. It is truly shocking. It's true, truly shocking. We see this more and more and more. Um, it, it's not uncommon for us to experience situations of, of, of serious um, personal risk um, on occasion to be threatened. Uh, that comes with the territory, if you like. But for somebody who's privileged <laughs> like me, you know, I, I, I understand my privilege. I can usually get out and escape. For those environmental defenders that are living on the front lines, that live in these communities where environmental crimes, abuses are taking place, it's hard. They don't want to leave and they can't leave very often. And we need to give them the protections, greater protection, greater standing, greater means to support themselves against those who want to, to cause them harm. And 
without being too simplistic about this, all too often you can see the harms that are being experienced originate with our consumption in the wealthy Western world. So it's the fish that we are eating that's been stolen from a poor coastal African nation. It's the timber products that we are using and consuming that have been cut in an Indonesian old growth rainforest and so on and so on. Um, Right now, we're working on a campaign in a place called the Pantanal in Brazil, not nearly as well known as the Amazon forest, but it's arguably the world's largest tropical wetland. It's on fire now. Around 20% of it is already on fire. It's drying up. The wildlife, unique wildlife there is, is, is being wiped out. And the indigenous communities that have lived there for centuries are being forced from their land. The primary reason that this is happening is the burning and conversion of the wetland to grow cattle to provide us with beef in the West. So our consumption is directly causing that problem to a unique, vital ecosystem for biodiversity, climate and indigenous communities. And I think these are the kind of stories, issues that Western decision makers have to engage with, understand and then act upon. You you talk about uh, our individual consumption and uh, clearly, you know, crucially important when you uh, uh, amalgamate uh, individual behavior across countries, across vast numbers of people. Um, intermedi- intermediaries in this consumption are corporations. And um, we talked about the situation of the mining companies. Um, but w- what is your view on... on uh, I guess you could just, as a shorthand, ESG, but corporations, sustainability commitments and agenda. How do you see this? Uh, you've been looking at this for many decades. Um, do you do you think that there's a, a real change uh, of direction here? Uh, significant in, uh, uh, new commitments to uh, you know the supply chain transparency, uh, various ESG. The SEC is getting involved. You know, can you talk a little bit about what, how you see the lay of the land there with with, with term, in, in terms of how corporations are uh, involved in all of this? Yes, I think. Corporate involvement is key, um, and I think you, you know we, we nobody must be deceived by this. We need a spoke of collaboration. We need to collaborate. Collaborate. We need government. We need corporate and business sector, and we need civil society to work together if we're going to solve these problems, especially the overarching issues like global heating and climate change. So that should be our starting point. My view is that there are some progressive corporations around the world that have changed quite dramatically, but there are also many that haven't, that are paying lip service to sustainability agendas, to rights agendas, that have lots of nice tick boxes and and logos to show what they're doing, but are not really doing it. And I think we don't have anymore the luxury of time to wait for them to see the light, get their act together and do this. Um, I think we need regulation. And this is where the law comes in. Again, we need to see firm regulations that require companies to do this. Now, 
right now in the European Union, there's under consideration something called the forced labour regulation, which would look at the labour abuses in corporate supply chains and require action and exclude products made with forced labour from European marketplace if it were to go through in the form we would like to see. There are other such initiatives underway around the world and they are vital because I think when you look at the corporate sector, despite the fact there are some good people, there are some good companies and I, I do not deny that and I encourage everyone to improve. The idea that voluntary regulation in a profit-driven world, is going to get you to where you need to be, I think is a fallacy. So we need to regulate, we need to do it now, and we need companies to be held to account. And that should be in the corporate boardroom. We need to see the chief executives, the CFOs, the COOs and others standing up and accounting for the impact that the companies they run are having. Yeah, it's... uh... Well, it's depressing in many ways to see the the uh, kickback against ESG. It's never a a, a, a perfect uh, scenario and, and set of, set of uh, measures and ways of looking at things, but the momentum around ESG seems to be faltering, and um, that's not good. The the, the uh, notwithstanding the fact that many of the the, the funds uh, labelled ESG and so forth are spurious. Um, there does seem to be, certainly coming out of America, some strong kickback against these kind of initiatives. There is, there is. And I mean, t- uh, th- this might make sense to your listeners, but just to give you a sense of this, put a different set of metrics around it. So, you know, you have, if you look at global food production and our consumption in the West, it's become highly concentrated. There are a few entities, corporate entities, that control an overwhelming share of the market. And they're having a disproportionate impact on their natural environments, on human rights and labor rights and such around the world. We need to regulate those companies. They're not doing it for themselves. Um, so that that's, that's pretty clear. And if you look at um, the history of this, if you, if you want to go back to climate, there has been a very comprehensive, detailed study done that showed that just 100 companies and state-owned entities are the source of over 70% of industrial greenhouse gas emissions yeah, since absolutely. 1988. Absolutely. Yeah, the year in which yeah. climate change was effectively acknowledged by the establishment of the, of the Intergovernmental Panel. So, you know, you look at that 100 companies. Yeah, now, no, I, is I, it? yeah I, 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 I've had this discussion uh, with a, a, a number of people on the podcast that uh, one of, it wasn't just that, but a, a key factor. Uh, I think in 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 the ozone and the Montreal Accord was being able to get all the companies in the room, all the people in the room responsible. Now it's not quite so simple, but it's a telling statistic. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. And so, why is it beyond our ability to regulate this? Why is it beyond our, our, our ability to to craft and implement elegant laws that are fair, reasonable, transparent, but that require uh, the kind of corporate due diligence, the ESG that that is fair, just, and reasonable? It, it's it's just a crazy situation that we're in. Yeah. Now, how are you funded as an organisation, and can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your funders? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. That so we we when we set the organisation up, we, we had three very simple things in mind. We were not going to be donor led. We were not going to be tied to a large fundraising operation, which which spent large amounts of the money that we got. And we wanted to maintain our complete independence and no political or religious affiliations or anything else. And largely we've been able to do that. The overwhelming bulk of our money comes from uh, corporate philanthropies, uh, institutions that fund a wealth of organizations from Human Rights Watch to, to WWF and others. And, and we seek out support from them, putting in grant applications. We often get it. We're also, we take money on occasion when we feel it is right from other institutions. Like we take, we're funded by the European Union, for example. We've had a multi-year, multi-million euro grant from the EU to in essence, support elements of our Environmental Defenders Programme, rolling out a um, smartphone app that allows artisanal fishers around the world to document illegal fishing as it happens, send it back to us, we collate and provide the evidence, and that evidence can then be handed on either to political decision makers or indeed to the corporate boardroom, as we mentioned. So that's how we get it. We're interesting... I suppose, in, a, in, a, in, a, in some ways, in that we're the only organisation of our size that I know of anywhere in the world that has no full-time fundraiser. <laughs> so yes, yeah. We've, and, you know, everything is transparent. It's all published. I, I profoundly believe in that, that we have to be clear, open and honest about where our money comes from. And my message to the donors has always been, I will tell you what I really think not what I think you want to hear from me. And the second point that I would make, and I, I, I push this to everyone, whatever um, charitable sector they're working in, I'll also tell you where we failed as well as where we succeeded. Yeah. And the reason for that, it's not, it's not as simple as fail your way to success, but it's because unless we acknowledge our failures, learn from them, and then act to rectify them, you end up constantly replicating them. And, you know, when I'm feeling slightly down, there's times when I look and I kind of see the same problems being rehearsed again and again. And I think uh, the not-for-profit sector around the world has got to get its act together and make sure that we do learn from our failures. We move forward and we have a better way of delivering the success that we need. Yeah, absolutely. So what influence do donors have on specific campaigns? They can, if, if you let them, they can have massive influence. They can, they, if you want to do it that way, they can tell you almost some of the, what I would call the interventionist donors, can tell you what to do. Um, we, as I mentioned already, you know, I, I enjoy a really lively interaction, interactive dialogue with the donors that support us, and we discuss things. But we will not be led, so we will only do what's what we think is right, what's going to be effective, and have impact. But the donor community, you know, is huge. If you look at international philanthropy, more more cases than not, it's as large or larger than than, than the bilateral aid that governments are giving. Yeah, you, you don't find yourself uh, under pressure to provide statistics and show data for the kinds of things that they're looking to satisfy their uh, corporate structures and so forth or, or various structures that um, maybe send you in a direction that is, is not uh, the, the, the most important for the organization. Do you need to supply them with certain kinds of information? Is that an issue? 
Not for that, no. I mean, so, some and again, some of our donors require almost nothing. So we get, you know, what's called yeah. in, in the yeah. sector is unrestricted funding, and you know, they yeah. say go away and spend it until you know, give us give us some kind of report. Others where we put in detailed, quite highly refined proposals that say we will do one, two, three, four, five, um, and it will cost this much, and it yeah. will deliver these outcomes. But the we're forensic and quite clinical in our analysis of what we will and will not accept. Yeah. We are not going to be led and driven to support the simple burnishing of a corporate brand yeah. or object business objectives and ideals. What we're trying to do is deliver the good in the real world for the environment and human rights. And you know, there's been many more than one occasion when I've turned – money down because I felt this simply isn't the right thing for us to do. Right. Absolutely. Now I asked at the beginning, what was on your mind? What worried you the most? Uh, so maybe uh, at the end here, uh, it just feels fair to ask what gives, what makes you optimistic? So this might not resonate with many, but I'm going to give you two, two simple examples. Um, it's not a popular view in the UK, but I would say, in Europe, in the European Union, I see advances and progression. In the European Parliament, in the Commission, I see large groups of people who have wanted to try and do the right thing, who are trying to drive social, environmental policy, work on human rights, labour rights, for the good. And it, it, I feel optimistic about that. I, I, I think the Europe, Europe is the world's most valuable marketplace, 500 million people, give or take, has the power to export that purchasing leverage that it has across the world to drive the way things are produced, how we view the natural world, how we treat people. That's one cause of optimism. The other side, very, very different, is I I genuinely inspired by many of the young people that I meet who are active, engaged, and who have a very different perspective, who see the world and see their future being washed away, um, but who are engaged, who are energetic, who are creative and thoughtful. I've, I've had the privilege of traveling throughout my life, and I'm moderately unusual as a CEO as I still travel. I want to see things firsthand and not live in a, live in a, 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 a nice, clean, tidy office. <laughs> and I meet those people who are on the front lines, who are fighting for change, who are arguing for a better world. And they are really quite incredible, some of them. And yeah. I, that, that gives me hope, optimism, and, and some kind of sense of, of um, a better world is indeed possible for all of us. Brilliant. Absolutely. What's next for the Environmental Justice Foundation? Next, we, we've been talking about this. We talk about it all the time, as, as you should. And the big thing is, is we want to massively expand our work for environmental defenders. So I could be very... I'm not trying to be too superficial about this, but we want to create a network of organisations, individuals, community groups across Indigenous peoples and elsewhere that puts us out of a job. We need to empower those people who are living in the global south and in the multiple countries there who are living in the places where the forests are being cut, where the fisheries are being denuded, where the means of production are polluting our environment and give them the tools and the wherewithal to solve those problems 
for themselves in their countries and then on a global scale. So my goal is literally to put myself out of a job. If I could do that, I will leave a happy man. Um, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, that, that's, a, that's a great vision. Uh, Steve, how can listeners support this important work you're doing? I, I, I think I wouldn't say support EJF. What I would say is get involved, educate yourself, don't be frightened, don't feel it's overwhelming, engage and then pick those organisations that you feel connected to, that you can support, that you can help. That can be as simple as giving a pound or it can be as dynamic, engaging, as involved as volunteering for groups that are trying to change the world for the better. But do it, be involved, don't be a bystander. Your participation is key. And then the last thing that I would say that would help me more than anything else is um, I often use a phrase, vote voice wallet. Make sure you vote for the world that you want to see and don't be deceived. Make sure you use your voice to call for it. And then, as I mentioned just now, if you can, give something. It almost doesn't matter who, which group you you. you tie your flag to but do give they need it they can they can benefit from this and and they will put your money to good use that's some great advice great inspiring advice steve thank you so much for your time today and i wish you all the very best with your ongoing work thanks so much virgil it's been a, it's been really a pleasure to talk with you if you enjoyed today's discussion we recommend you check out and support the work of client earth Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach, using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth uses the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. You can find out more at clientearth.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.